Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Bibles and uh, open up to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, and if you have a way to mark that, do so. We're going to read a portion of that, and then we're going to move over into Genesis 37, and then we'll come back to this in Psalm 139 at the end. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 139, and To start off, I'm going to uh, give you a diagnosis that you may not know you have. And in fact, that many of us may not know that we have. Uh, This is actually according to an author named Keith Webb. And he says that many of us suffer from a serious illness. One that afflicts without regards to education, economics, or ethnicity. And it evenly afflicts people from every region of the world. People of faith are not immune, and they may even suffer at a slightly higher rate at times. Though sometimes people with no faith exhibit the strongest symptoms of the illness. Some people say that it doesn't exist. Or if it does, it only exists in others. This illness is called... Know-it-all-ism. It affects the ability of the mind to take in information and process it without prejudice. It also causes those afflicted to be blinded to opinions, answers, and solutions other than their own. Now, how many of you think that at one point or another you may have suffered from know-it-all-ism? I'm going to ask another question. How many of you would say that your spouse has at some point or another suffered from know-it-all? Oh, see, why is there so many more hands that went up? This is the problem. See? Now, there's really two types of this illness. One is more aggressive. And here are the symptoms of aggressive know-it-allism. Quick to speak. Listens until the other person takes a breath has an answer for everything, wins arguments, but loses respect. Now, here's passive know-it-allism, which I think at times may be more common. An appearance of listening, maintaining a smug facial expression, asks Questions that subtly point out why the speaker is wrong. Or internally mocks or criticizes the speaker. Now, the reality is, in some way or another, because, simply because we are human beings, each of us struggles at some point or another with this illness. But how much do we really 
know. While it's difficult to even begin to quantify this number, there is no doubt that when it comes to all available knowledge in the world, each one of us holds a tiny fraction of understanding. So how does this influence our thinking about who God is? Now, if you're just joining us for the first time, we've been walking through a series of talks called God Is. And the focus of this series of talks has simply been a desire, a yearning to understand not who we've created God to be, but who he's revealed himself to be in Scripture. And my prayer as we walk through this is that we as a church body would be transformed by knowing the truth about the God we claim to worship and serve. Because if we are worshiping a God that goes contrary to who he's revealed himself to be, then by the very biblical definition, we are worshiping a false God. And so our desire is to hold fast to the word of God, to his revealed word, what we believe is the only true source that we can reference and hold to knowing who he is. But how does this concept about how much we know or how little we know influence who God is in our own minds? And while we may not cognitively realize it, we often see God through the very lens that we are, ourselves. Which includes what we know. Surely God must feel the same way as me in regards to politics, personal wages, the weather the state of the world, and even my favorite sports team. Could it be that I'm wrongly projecting myself or rather building my own version of who God is? Could it be that the God of the Bible sees things significantly different than I do? Could it be that in the scope of the universe, the reality of God's character, his sovereignty, his holiness, his justice, his love, comes back to a core reality that God knows even when I don't? That's our main idea for today, church. So if if you get nothing else out of this morning, I want you to wrestle with this statement. I want you to wrestle with this statement. We're going to unpack that from Scripture. The simple statement, God knows... Even when I don't. Now, just to see how warmed up you are, I'm going to count to three, and I just want you to say, God knows. All right? One, two, three. Woo, you guys are warm. I like it. So I'm going to ask you to say that multiple times throughout today, because I want this to stick. And I want you to grasp this and wrestle with the application of this in your own life. But as we do that, my earnest desire is that we come to Scripture and we unpack this. And so Psalm 139, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read this section of Scripture. In honor of God's Word. And I'm going to read the first six verses. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. 
You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Father, as we study the concept of your omniscience, the reality that you know, even when we don't, and especially when we don't, Father, may you challenge us, impact us, and may we leave here transformed by the truth of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Now I want you to flip backwards in your Bible to Genesis chapter 37. And uh, Mark Psalm 139, we're going to come back to it. And Genesis 37, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There should be one in the pew in front of you. And uh, if you turn to page 36 in that Bible, you should be at Genesis 37. When we come to the text of Scripture and we wrestle with a concept of who God is, one of the, one of the realities that I often apply is if I can hear, a, hear or see a story of how something is unpacked, I'm way more prone to understand it. And so today, we're going to walk through the journey of one individual in Scripture who went through all kinds of difficulties. And we're actually, believe it or not, we're going to walk step by step through from Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50. Now, don't worry. We're not going to be here till 3 o'clock. Okay? But I want you to grasp the scope of this narrative. And a narrative is simply... A story, a historical story that Scripture tells of real life happenings and illustrates main concepts. And oftentimes when you read these, you can grasp multiple concepts out of one narrative. And that's the beauty, that's what I love about the Old Testament. Many of us don't give the Old Testament enough time. And specifically today, we're going to be talking about a guy named Joseph. And some of you may have heard of this guy before some of you this may be the first time you're hearing about this but regardless I want us to all try and step back onto the same level and say I want to look at this with new eyes and seek to understand something here that maybe I haven't grasped within this story before and so in Genesis 37 I'm going to start in verse 1 and what what we're going to do is we're just going to walk bit by bit and I'll tell you where we're going to go next. And I'll, I'll summarize bits and pieces in between. And we're going to walk all the way through this story. And then when we get to the end, I've got some specific application for us directly from this narrative as it ties in with Psalm 139. So Psalm 37, I'm going to start in, or, or Genesis 37, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, everyone say 17, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, 
And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's the same as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, pause for a minute. A little historical overview. Joseph is the son of Jacob, or also known as Israel. Jacob was the son of Isaac... One of twins, Jacob and Esau, who were born to Isaac. And Isaac was the son, the promised son of Abraham. In which God promised to bless nations and build nations from. So just so you get a little family lineage here, this is crucial. If you go back and start in Genesis, you see the significance of these people and how they're related to each other and what's taking place in the bigger picture of God's plan. Joseph is 17 at the beginning of the story. And he has these dreams and he tells them to his already agitated brothers. This sets the tone for what happens next in the story. Let's continue this in verse 12. It says, Now his brothers went to pasture for their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Now, All that's happening here, Joseph's brothers, they're out in the field. Joseph's father comes to him and says, hey, your brothers are out in the field. And essentially asks him to go to them. And Joseph obliges, here I am, father, I will go. Now jump with me to verse 18. Verse 18. They saw him, they being Joseph's brothers, from afar... And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now, this escalated quite quickly. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer 
Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him, him being Joseph, out of their hands, saying, Let us, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. That he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So Reuben comes into the picture and he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I am not okay with this conversation. Let's just not kill him, but you could still throw him in the pit. But you could see his motive on the backside that he was hoping to rescue him and return him to his father and that... He could just gloss all of this over. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Now this is a drastic turn of events. Joseph, coming out to check on his brothers, is jumped, mugged, and thrown into a pit by his own kin. While this was no doubt a better alternative to being killed, still not an ideal day or an expected one. Nobody goes out to their brothers anticipating to being thrown into an empty well. And yet, this is where he is. Stuck in a pit, waiting, who knows what. Is this indeed what Joseph's dreams predicted? What is happening here? What is God doing? Now let's continue this in verse 28. It says, Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned, Reuben being the brother that wanted to rescue him, And saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Jumped, stripped, thrown in a pit, now sold as a slave. What more could possibly go wrong? Have you ever been trapped in a cycle in your own life and asking that very same question? What more could possibly go wrong? One thing to the next, to the next, to the next. Sometimes it happens in threes, doesn't it? Or more than that. 
It just seems like this happened, and then this happened, and then it rained all over everything else. And then you end up sitting down going, what is going on? And in the midst of that, we often go, God, what are you doing? Or many people turn and and say, God, I don't think there is a God, because if there was, this can't be. How things would turn out. It's often in those times when we not only fall into despair, but we also take matters into our own hands. Know-it-allism, right? But Joseph's story isn't finished yet. We're going to jump over to chapter 39. Chapter 39. Verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmael, or had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw, isn't this interesting? In the midst of all that's happening, verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord had caused all that he had to succeed in his hands. I don't know about you, but the track record of Joseph's life to this point, from our perspective, doesn't seem like it's very successful, does it? Should probably change our definition of what success looks like. Verse 4, so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Hey, it's looking up for Joseph. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day. He would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went to the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And soon, as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, 
This is the way your servant treated me? His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made a success. So it was looking good, wasn't it? Things are, were turning up, weren't they? And then all of a sudden, boom, bombshell. Joseph is in prison now. He did nothing wrong. And by every measure that we see, he did everything right. And now he's in prison. What is happening? God, what are you doing? You know, I read this story, and every time I come back to it, I try to put myself in Joseph's shoes and ask the question, would I still faithfully serve God in every measure of what's taking place here? Would I continue to do that? Would I faithfully continue to be told that the very people that I was working for, enslaved to, would recognize the Lord in me? What would my attitude really say? What does our attitude really say when we're going through those seasons time after time and we go, what is God doing? What is He doing? And that's the biggest reason why within our main idea is what? One, two, three. God knows even when we don't. Now, while Joseph is in prison, there's two men that come to him, or that are imprisoned alongside two of Pharaoh's a service men. One's a baker, one's a cupbearer, and they have dreams while they're in there with Joseph. And Joseph interprets both of their dreams for the baker. The result, the interpretation of the dream is not good. Joseph essentially says, you're going to be hung, you're, you're going to be killed. For the cupbearer, it was good news. Joseph said, you're, you're going to be freed. You're going to be released, and you're going to be returned back into Pharaoh's service. And it's interesting that in the interpretation of these dreams, if you look at chapter 40, verses 14 and 15, Joseph pleads with the cupbearer after he interprets this dream and says, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. But if you jump down to chapter 40, verse 23 says, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And in 41 verse 1, it says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed a dream here. Two whole years that he's in prison. After he's already asked the cupbearer, please, just remember, I've done nothing wrong. 
And we can gather from this that Joseph is pleading with God. God, I've done nothing wrong. What, what, what is that? Why? Why is this? And yet he faithfully continued to serve the Lord. But here's what happens after two years. Joe, uh, Pharaoh has these dreams. And guess what? Dreams. The cupbearer goes, oh, Joseph. And so he tells Pharaoh, I was in prison with this guy. And he, he interpreted our dreams and, and they were accurate. It came true. So Pharaoh says, bring this man to me. I, I, want to, I, I want to see if he can interpret these dreams because no one else seems to be able to. And Joseph comes and he says, your dreams revealing that there's going to be several years of plenty and abundance and then there's going to be years of famine and nothing. And he makes a recommendation to Pharaoh and he says, I, during these years of plenty, you need to store up. Store up excess so that the people can be cared for in the years of famine and drought. And Pharaoh goes, this guy has a good administrative decision. And as a result of that, in chapter 41, verses 37 through 40, Pharaoh recognizes and says, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. What a turn of events. Who could have predicted this? So Joseph oversees all of this. And he gathers the food and administrates this. And he becomes well respected in the land of Egypt. And then in chapter 42 later on. Verse 1. It says, when Jacob learned, this would have been Joseph's father, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. Now you could kind of piece together where this is going. Joseph's family is in need of food in this time of drought, in this time of famine. They travel to Egypt seeking this one who is overseeing all of this. And in fact, they travel back and forth a couple of times because the first time they came, Joseph learns that he has now a younger brother, Benjamin. And they didn't bring Benjamin when they first came because, no surprise here, Joseph's father was like, no, no, I'm not sending my youngest son away again. Last time I did that, it didn't turn out well. And so when Joseph finds this out, he sends his brothers back. They still don't know who he is at this point. And he tells them, you, you don't come back here again until you bring with you the youngest boy. And so they run out of food again. They decide to go back to Egypt and they convince their father very begrudgingly to bring Benjamin with. And if you jump to chapter 45, verse 
It's in verse 1, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. You and I would be too. What? Not only now are they wrestling with the reality that who knows how much time has passed since the 17-year-old Joseph was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, sold to Potiphar, imprisoned for something he didn't do, and now put in Pharaoh's kingdom as one in charge, really second in command of Egypt. And at the same time wrestling with, I often wonder in that moment if it clicked, the dream. The dream he told us about. We have been coming and bowing before him, indebted to him. The dream he told us about that we made fun of him for. But turn over to me. Turn over with me to Genesis 50. Because what transpires in between chapter 45 and chapter 50 is Joseph's whole family ends up coming to Egypt so that they can survive. And in Genesis 50, their father has passed away Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of our father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him, and he said, Behold, we are your servants. Verse 19, listen to this. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am, am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, real quickly, turn back to Psalm 139 with me. And I'm going to give you three specific observations that we could see in the story of Joseph. But also in Psalm 139, the first one of those... Listen to this, church. God knows the deepest part of your thoughts, even your doubts. None of those surprise him. I guarantee you, Joseph struggled at portions along his journey. He struggled with these realities. What are you doing, God? 
In Psalm 139, verse 2, you know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. He knows what's going through your mind. You're not alone in that. Secondly, God knows the condition of your heart, even if others don't. Verse 4 says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And in other places of scripture, it says, out of the recesses of the heart, the mouth speaks. If God knows what's going to come out of my mouth before I even say it, he knows the condition of our heart. Even if we've done a really good job of disguising that to other people. Don't think that you're disguising that. God is all-knowing. He recognizes. He knows this. Thirdly, God knows before, during, and after you know and in ways that you never will. Verse 6 reminds us that such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I what? What is that word? I cannot, everyone say cannot, I cannot attain it. No matter how much time you are given on this earth, no matter how much work you do, it is utterly impossible as human beings for you to comprehend all of the knowledge, everything possible in the scope of the universe. You cannot and will not attain it. But God knows. Now, knowing all of this, the gospel becomes so much more profound because God chose to send His Son anyway, didn't He? When Joseph had dreams and wrestled with what they would mean, who knew? God knew. Everyone say, God knew. When Joseph went to check on his brothers and wound up in a pit and sold to a passing caravan, everyone say, God knew. When Joseph was thrown into prison for something he didn't do, and he had every reason to doubt God's plan in that, everyone say, God knew. When Joseph was placed in a leadership role at a time of struggle in Egypt, and some people would ask why, everyone say, God knew. Only after all that time did it become drastically evident to Joseph the reason behind it all, but everyone say, God knew. Church, no matter what you are facing today, or whether you feel like you are supported or alone, God knows. God knows. Whether you feel like you have a grasp on where your future is headed, or you feel like you're floundering in a sea of doubt and despair, searching for one glimmer of direction or hope, God knows. No matter where you believe the church, the bride of Christ has been, or where it is going, no matter how many times you question what God is doing within His people right now, God knows. And so an application, here's what I want to challenge you with. I want to challenge you to stop and remind yourself that God knows even when I don't. Whether it is in the midst of a storm, a general anxiety as you look around you, or even a season of blessing, don't allow yourself to get caught up in the knowing of your own self. But rest in the truth that God knows. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. 
And as they do so, here's what I want you to do. Many of you are wrestling with something in your life right now, and you're going, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know when I'm going to reach the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. But everyone say, God knows. And so as we sing this last song, I want you to wrestle with whatever it is. Whatever it is that you go, I don't know. And I need to be able to trust that God knows. And whether you speak that to someone next to you, whether it be your spouse or a close friend, or you write it down on your bulletin or on a scratch piece of paper, I want you to do that. I want you to stick it right in Psalm 139. And as we sing this last song, I want you to wrestle with that truth that God knows, even when I don't. In that specific situation, God knows. He knows why you're in it, but He also knows what He's going to do through it. In the same way that Joseph, time after time, could have said, I have no idea what God is doing or why. It just seems like one bad thing after the next. I'm serving the Lord. Why am I not seeing blessing in the midst of this? And in Genesis 50, Joseph could articulate and say, You meant it for evil, brothers, but God meant it for good, that many would be kept alive as they are right now. May we commit what we don't know to the one who does, and our hope and our trust be rooted in that. Amen? Everyone say, God knows. Stand with me. Father, we recognize that you know this that you know these truths and how you're going to use the difficulties of our life. May you give us a glimpse of that. May we be encouraged by the reminder that you are sovereign, that you are all-knowing. And may we strive to live in light of those truths. This very day, we pray this in Jesus' name.